This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's been hard for Vasti Rosado of Denver to watch the devastation in Puerto Rico from afar. Much of her family still lives there. She was born and raised on the island. Just before Hurricane Maria hit, Rosado was able to get her grandmother on the phone. She's in her 80s and sounded strong but scared. Then silence for days. But over the weekend, Rosado's family was able to fly their grandmother to safety in Miami. Eventually, Vasti Rosado plans to leave Colorado and move back to Puerto Rico. She says her family and her people need her help. And Vasti, welcome to the program. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Sorry it's under these circumstances. Your grandmother has diabetes and was in the mountains of Puerto Rico. Much of the island, as we know, is without power or clean water. And uh, you only knew she was okay because a cousin was able to communicate with you. And now that your grandmother is on the mainland and you've been able to talk to her, what have you heard about what she witnessed? Um, it's It was rough. When she first called on Friday morning, she, we both broke down in tears. Um, and I asked Grandma, hey, how was the island? What did you see? What did you witness? And so she shared her story of suffering with me. First words that were out of her mouth was like, it's bad. It's really bad. It's worse than what we see in the news. Um, Hard to imagine it's worse than what we see. Yeah. She says animals are starting to rot on the ground. People who died inside of homes that were covered by mudslides are starting to stink. Hospital morgues are being filled with people who die in the ICU. And there's not enough materials to take care of the death. Um, we have family up in the mountains that, according to her, already lost everything. So we're trying to get help and funds sent that way. I'm curious how she got to the airport to leave, because I've heard that roads are in such bad shape. Um, I'm not really sure of how she got to the airport. My grandma's really resilient, so I'm sure that she, if she had to walk a few miles, she would walk those. But from my understanding, somehow my aunt made communication with my grandma's neighbor, who then took the task of finding her to communicate with her. And then the neighbor found her and took her to the airport. My goodness. It's uh, sometimes calling neighbors to check in Mm -hmm. on neighbors. Do you know if your grandmother wants to go back to Puerto Rico eventually? Or is she sort of resigned the idea of living stateside? No, she's going back. She's going back. She's going back. There's no hesitation there, Vasti. No. My grandma will not be in the States. She will stay here for a few months until things calm down, and then she's going to go back. Your cousin, I think the one who told you that your grandmother was okay, is volunteering at a hospital right now where she could get Wi-Fi to communicate with you. What is what is she experiencing? Um, so my cousin's a medical student, and she's volunteering at Centro Medico, which is one of the few hospitals that's, that's working right now and has and kind of worked throughout the whole emergency because power has been an issue for many medical facilities. Yes. Um, she sent me a text. Um, I'll pull it up real quick because her words are more powerful than just my words. Sure. If you're just joining us, this is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Vasti Rosado of Denver. She was born and raised in Puerto Rico and uh, has been keeping track of her family in the wake of Hurricane Maria. And uh, she's checking a text right now that she got just in recent days from her cousin who's working at a hospital. I I also understand that you are trying to get supplies 
to Puerto Rico, which we'll talk about in a moment. But go ahead and read that. Um, so the text that she sent me Thursday late in the evening said, this is terrible. There are so many people dying because diesel doesn't get to the hospitals or oxygen tanks don't reach them in time. When we have power, we are okay. But when it goes out, patients suffer so much. There are so many dead people that the media hasn't covered. So many dead people. Yes. Uh, talk to me about getting supplies to Puerto Rico. Um, getting supplies to Puerto Rico has been a little bit uh, rough, especially um, from Colorado. We are still in the process of figuring out all the logistics because we have collected supplies. Now we get we have to find a way to ship them to Miami and then from Miami ship them to Puerto Rico. And I think the question is, once they reach Puerto Rico, if they do, how do they get distributed because roads are so bad? Um, so the best way to make sure supplies reach um, people is to send smaller packages because that way FEMA doesn't confiscate them. Any big donations that have been sent, FEMA saying, we will take control of the distribution. So then they just, FEMA takes control of them. But if you send specific small packages um, directly to organizations in Puerto Rico or people in Puerto Rico, then they're able to either go to the um, the airport and pick up the supplies. People are moving in AT. Uh, the 4 by 4 little uh, cars. Oh, ATVs. So people are moving in ATVs, motorcycles, and that's how people, like, people themselves are mobilizing the supplies. So we had on a, uh, an expert in charitable giving recently who really suggested against giving uh, items and giving money instead because items can clog the system. It can sort of... Uh, uh, get in the way of of relief groups that are really on the ground there. What do you have concerns about whether the help you provide could get in the way? Um, yes and no, because I like I like I've said earlier, smaller packages work better. So if you're selling smaller things, it'd be better to get them straight to people because some of the post office are all working, so people can go and grab. Um, like a packet that has a few water bottles, a few water filters, and so forth. And that will get directly to people. But then the aid money, I've worked with humanitarian aid before. Aid money usually is not spent in the most wise way. A lot of goes into like admin costs or so forth. So it's it's kind of paradoxical. Mm. I, I think you're not saying, though, that all organizations misspend their money. Mm-hmm. I don't hear you saying that. No, I'm not saying that. It what sounds I'm, like you're wary of their efforts. I'm just wary of bigger organizations because of my personal experience in humanitarian aid. So your plan is to go back to Puerto Rico and perhaps eventually to move. Is that right? Uh, yes. I'm trying to go home in the next few weeks to help out with different organizations that are local that I have made contact with. Um I've always thought about moving back to Puerto Rico. It was a little bit down the road, but it has been pushed forward. And hopefully in the next 18 months, I'll be back home. You feel like this is your mission now? Puerto Rico has always been my mission. It's just been propelled forward more. Mm-hmm. What is it that you hope to achieve? Um, I know that I have the experience and I have an international network of people who are willing to go to Puerto Rico in the long term. I want to say that you're a caseworker with the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. Mm-hmm. You've also had experience working with refugees in Ethiopia. Yes. Um, so we are working as an international community that I have connections with. We are starting to talk about how do we make sure that we provide long-term solutions to Puerto Rico because humanitarian aid and emergency aid focuses on emergency six-month path, and we're going to just fall out the radar. 
And we have to think about how are we going to make sure in the long term, if another hurricane hits again, how are we going to be more resilient? Because Puerto Rico is in the pathway of hurricanes. So this could happen again in the next three months because the hurricane season is not over. This could happen again next year or the year after. So how are we going to rebuild our economy, our infrastructure, and our social structure in order to be more resilient and prepare for these disasters? It sounds like your family is stepping up in any way they can. I understand that your mom and your aunt both work for American Airlines. They've been able to get supplies in as cargo. And your uncle, you found out that he was alive through, I, I think, a CNN story on him. He's a ham radio operator. Mm-hmm. What, what has he been up to? He's been communicating throughout the island with people with aid. If you have a radio and you want news, he's been um, communicating news. He's been communicating where the needs are, which roads are open, which roads are not open. Just getting that information out into the air so that anybody who has access to radio, including FEMA or the military or the National Guard, has more information of where the need actually is. So here you are thinking long term that you're going back to Puerto Rico uh, and yet we know that many people are trying to flee the island and may wish to do so long term. Uh, Puerto Rico is already concerned about a sort of brain drain. Uh, do you think that that will get worse as a result of the hurricane? In the short term, yes, it will get worse. But in the long term, I believe a lot of diaspora, and especially with the diaspora that I've spoken to, the diaspora is ready to step up and realize that we need to send people back home because if not, the island's going to be deserted. And you can't rebuild an island without people. Do you have concerns of desertion? A little bit, but not too much. I like, I've spoken with a lot of youth organizations in Puerto Rico, and the youth is determined to stay and rebuild. And those are just the personal people that I've spoken to who said, this is the time that we need to stay here. This is not the time to flee. So you think this will be a question of young people, in a way, recommitting to the island? Yes. I, I do want to go back to the idea of charitable giving, because I, I just I think it's uh, important to, to be clear on how people help. And if you don't have direct connections to Puerto Rico, you don't have someone you would send, you know, gauze to at a medical facility specifically, uh, that, that experts widely say sending money to organizations doing relief on the ground is the way to act. Would, would you dispute that if, if someone doesn't have a specific connection to Puerto Rico? Um... If you don't have a specific connection to Puerto Rico, I would encourage you to educate yourself and find local Puerto Rican organizations who are mobilizing aid and donate to those. Hmm. Uh, Which is something else we heard from this charitable giving expert, which is if you can identify groups on the ground and give directly to them. That's what you're suggesting there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Do you think you'll go back in the short term before you move back permanently? Oh, of course. Of course. Uh, so I imagine I tra- you're eager to connect with your family. Yeah, I travel for free. So it would be very easy for me to do a bunch of trips throughout the year. Just I'm going to go for five days and then I'll go again for another four days and I'll go again for another three days. This that- is because of the connection your family has to the airlines, I gather? Yes. Okay. Yes, because my mom's a flight attendant. So because of this uh, privilege that I have, I there's no doubt in my mind that before I fully resettle back home, There will be a lot of traveling back and forth just to make sure that the networks are there, to make sure that the information is flowing between the island and the mainland into the international community as well. Will you keep in touch with us as you head back? 
Surely, if you guys want to. Yeah, I'd I'd like to to get updates on you, your family, and uh, and as you your words, your people. You say. Yes, they are my people. I yeah. I, I do want to point out that that since the hurricane, there have been surveys conducted of uh, people to ask whether. Uh, there's an understanding that Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. And 54% of Americans know that people born in Puerto Rico are U.S. citizens. That means, uh, you know, nearly half of the country is not aware of this. That's true. I mean, I've had people ask me, are you a citizen? Did you come here with a visa? How did you get into the country? These are questions I've personally received when people realize I'm from Puerto Rico. Does this become an educational experience, do you think? Oh, yeah. Uh For sure. Thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. Fosti Rosado of Denver was born and raised in Puerto Rico, where much of her family still lives. Eventually, as we said, she plans to move back to the island to help with long-term recovery. And we'll check back in with her. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Some business leaders in this state say they're desperate for road and bridge improvements and more public transit. So the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce will lead a campaign to raise the state sales tax. It would go before voters next year. Chamber President Kelly Bruff joins me from her office and a welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. If history is any indication, this will be an uphill battle. Voters have only passed two statewide tax increases in 25 years, and they were both for sin taxes uh, on cigarettes and marijuana. Why is it so important to you and the businesses you represent to have more money for transportation? You know, I think we're like every other Coloradan. Our members are noticing the impact of uh, the congestion on our roads, not just in the metro area, but throughout the state. And it's costing them real money. Uh, We did a study, as a matter of fact, that showed Coloradans are collectively paying about $6.8 billion a year in personal costs because of the time, the added time, and just the cost of sitting in traffic and congestion. Is that just lost productivity? What? Yeah, so the estimate is it's as much as 50 hours a year in lost time. It's thousands of dollars in increased use of gas because you're sitting in traffic in more accidents. Meanwhile, the U.S. Department of Transportation estimates it costs each Coloradan more than $250 a year in repairs, for example, driving on roads that need fixing. What does this mean for businesses? Um, Take me into some of the conversations you've had. Well, for businesses, there's two perspectives. If you're moving goods or, you know, you have to get someplace, uh, it just takes longer and it's more expensive for you as well. But also, the workers in Colorado work for companies. And so workers spending more and more time on roads trying to get to work or get home uh, concerns employers, too. As a quality of life issue to attract employees, I guess. So have you you heard from companies that say we'd get better workers or more of them if the roads were better? Is it... That direct? No, I I don't think what's happening is so much that as it is companies recognizing it's costing us more to conduct our business here. And it's impacting the quality of life of everybody in Colorado. And with simple investments, we could change that. So you you haven't heard from a company like Amazon, for instance, um, that says we, we, (laughs) we won't come there because of the roads. I will give you an example. 
Uh, we have had companies who have come because of the investments that we have made in our transportation system. Uh, in the metro area, we've seen the investment that our residents made in transit uh, really changed some companies' decision to come here, and it certainly changes uh, workers' decisions uh, who want to come to Colorado. Who came to Colorado because of light rail or commuter rail? Uh, Well, most recently you would hear, uh, well, actually Amazon is a great example in this regard. In their proposal, they say specifically you have to be within a certain distance. It has to have a transit system for them. And in that case, they're really focused on uh, both rail but also bus rapid transit. Uh, We've had other companies like DeVita who made a choice about their physical location based on being close to transit. So it's very common. So transit is one thing, but to roads and bridges, I suppose there are some who would say you can't build your way out of congestion in terms of more highways. So is this a bit of a a false promise to say, hey, spend more money on transportation and congestion will ease? It seems like the more you build, the more it just gets crowded. Right. So, Ryan, I think your assumption is that this means we're going to build more lanes throughout the state. And the Colorado Department of Transportation has a $6 billion project list. I think the assumption is that a lot of those projects that are established by CDOT on a list that voters would be approving can maybe not at all be about expanding or adding a lane, but could be much more about maintaining what is already there that um, needs to be improved, or about technology, how you can make new investments that make that same roadway much more efficient or usable, which could, of course, include uh, our future of, you know, autonomous vehicles or driverless cars. And would voters, as they're casting a ballot, would they have a list of, of specific projects? They would. Voters would know exactly what statewide projects CDOT would be able to fund, and they would also know exactly how much money they could expect their community to get that their local priorities could guide. Um, So one of the big issues we've heard in rural Colorado is making sure seniors are able to get to doctor's appointments. How much are you going to seek, by the way? What, What kind of a sales tax increase? We focused on sales tax for a few reasons. One is it also means visitors help pay. Uh, And we think visitors to our state should help pay for the cost of our infrastructure and our roads. We don't have a final number of what it will look like. We're working with the Colorado Department of Transportation and the state of Colorado to really understand what are the most critical investments. Uh, What have you heard uh, from businesses, if anything, uh, who are opposed to raising taxes to do this and who think that the state has enough money as it is and should just reprioritize You know, Ryan, at the Chamber, we have about 3,000 members, and we have overwhelming support from our members to do this. And so while we recognize there are going to be naysayers and people who believe the resources are there, we really do believe, even at the legislature, we've had a very diverse uh, group of legislators who I believe if the money that was there, they would have funded this long ago. We're confident that we're not asking voters for anything that isn't critically necessary. If there's such agreement, why wouldn't the legislature send a measure to the ballot uh, for voters to vote on? They've tried that in the past, but it hasn't succeeded. It's one of the reasons I assume the chamber is going this route. Yeah. I can't really speak to, you know, why the legislature didn't get the bill. There was a bill before them this year that our coalition that we're part of worked very hard to try to get passed. And so instead of analyzing what's wrong, we just decided um, we as a community should take to the ballot and allow the voters to make this decision. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm joined by the president and CEO of the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce, Kelly Bruff. 
The chamber is considering backing a sales tax increase statewide to pay for transportation. What role do businesses play in the congestion? I, I think of a conversation that I had with a transportation planner who said every office that provides free parking to its employees is subsidizing the driving of their employees to work. And that if there could be increased telecommuting or if, I don't know, you charged an employee for parking, there might be more carpooling. Like, aren't, aren't businesses which demand commutes part of the problem here? Yeah, I mean, uh, the truth is, at some point, we're probably all commuting, no matter how carefully we've tried to pick our home and be close to work. I do think your point of making sure as companies that we're adopting policies that really encourage the behavior we all need to see. And you don't see, certainly downtown, you know, the average parking downtown is uh, around $285 a month. Most of our employers can't afford to pay those kind of costs for their employees. Mm. Um, And they focus often on, can I instead provide an eco-pass? And I think the market helps dictate how quickly we move in one direction or the other. You may be in competition with another ballot measure to fund roads. Conservatives, including at the Independence Institute in Denver, want to force lawmakers to reallocate current tax money to put more of it to road improvements. And uh, they have suggested cutting some public transit in order to do that, as well as subsidies for filmmakers and electric vehicles. How important is transit in your proposal? You know, I think um, when we think about transit in the business community, what we understand is the range uh, of options that it includes, and we think that's very important. I think most people think of rail. This money is not going to the regional transportation district or but it could help fund those kind of mobility services. So this could include things like a bus service or, as I mentioned earlier, for seniors maybe uh, to get to a doctor's appointment. And all of those would fall into that category of mobility services. What am I hearing uh, as the subtext when you say none of this is going to RTD? Is that like a, is that a reassurance to voters who might be ticked off about fast tracks and the current state of, of light rail and commuter rail? Uh, Yeah, in no way do I mean to, you know, make it sound like a negative for RTD at all. It's meant to remind people that those are separate political entities, and I'm not sure every Coloradan realizes uh, the Colorado Department of Transportation doesn't run fast tracks, and so it was to try to remind people this is a separate entity, and it's a statewide focus. Kelly, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having us on. Kelly Bruff is president and CEO of the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce, which hopes to land a statewide sales tax increase on next year's ballot to pay for roads, bridges, and transit. At CPRnews.org, we've linked to that alternative proposal. It's titled, Fix Our Damn Roads. Now, state lawmakers did approve a relatively small amount of money for transportation this year. And that is in the news again because of what lawmakers have called an accidental oversight in the bill. The legislature reconvenes for a special session starting today to deal with this mistake. CPR's Sam Brash is here to explain what happened and why some don't think it merits a special session. Hi, Sam. Hi, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm good. What went wrong here? 
So this all goes back to this huge compromise bill, SB 267. Uh, Lawmakers rushed to pass it at the bitter end of the last session, and it touched almost every aspect of state finances. It saved rural hospitals from some potentially catastrophic funding cuts. It boosted funding for roads and schools, and it raised the state spending cap. Now, where things went wrong is it also hiked taxes on recreational marijuana. Well, walk us through that. So the bill consolidated two state-level marijuana taxes into a single higher tax. When it did that, the way it was written, it blocked special districts from collecting marijuana sales taxes for themselves. Okay, special districts. What does that mean for the people of Colorado? So special districts are organizations uh, like RTD. The bill canceled a 1% tax on marijuana sales within Metro Denver. Dave Genova is RTD's general manager. He actually spoke to you on Colorado Matters and said that adds up to about six million dollars a year. If we were to do a service reduction on that, that would negatively impact about 4,500 patrons that would not have service if we have to go down the service uh, reduction road. So a bit of a veiled threat there to lawmakers fix this or RTD could really have to cut some services. Okay, RTD certainly not the only special district. So what other organizations are taking a hit? Right. So there's SCFD uh, that's losing around $50,000 a month. The organization funds things like the Denver Zoo and the Denver Art Museum. Rural transit and housing authorities are also taking a hit. And one that caught my eye is the Montezuma Hospital District. It's losing around $7,200 a month. I got a hold of Keenan Lovett. He's a lawyer for the district. We're a rural area. This is a rural hospital. Not like we've got huge coffers down here that, you know, that type of money doesn't mean anything to our hospital. It certainly does, and it means a lot to our community. A bit of irony there. This is a bill meant to help rural hospitals. In this one case, it's caused problems. Ah, because it's a special district. And if those districts aren't getting this money, What's happening to the money? It's uh, staying in the pockets of marijuana buyers. So this bill raised the state tax on recreational pot, but prices should be even higher than they are right now at the dispensary. Now, was this situation a mistake or is it possible lawmakers knew what they were doing? It seems like everyone agrees this was a mistake. The Department of Revenue caught the air. They confirmed it with the attorney general in June and all the bill sponsors agreed that was a screw up. The regular legislative session starts every January. That's just in about three months from now. Why did the governor call everyone back so close to the session? That's the really big question. And it sounds like he talked to special districts and they told him they just couldn't afford the wait. If you look across all these special districts, they stand to lose about $4.5 million if they wait until January. But not everyone at the Capitol is on board with this decision to call a special session. No, they are not. There are really three sort of main arguments against the session. One is that many Republicans were against the original bill. Uh, Senate President Kevin Grantham, he's the top Republican lawmaker. He doesn't really want to reopen that can of worms, go back into this really delicate compromise. The other is that some Republicans have constitutional objections. They say reinstating the sales tax amounts to a tax increase. Ah, they think Tabor should be involved. Exactly. They think it it requires a vote of the people to actually do this, even though it was a mistake. Of course, Democrats disagree and say case law supports them doing this. And there's also the cost to the taxpayers. So this special session costs around $25,000 a day. It takes three days to pass a bill in Colorado. So we're looking at a minimum of $75,000. Now, the governor undercut that a little bit. He says he worked out a deal where special districts would actually pay for the session themselves. And that really pissed off Republicans. Grantham told Colorado Politics it's like a sponsorship deal. Interested parties are paying for lawmakers to defend their budget. So you said it takes at least three days to pass a bill. Should people expect the session to wrap up by Wednesday? 
That really depends on the lawmakers. Uh, The governor has the power to call the special session. He sets the agenda. And in this case, Hickenlooper has said the focus is this tax fix. Yeah, he thinks it's pretty narrow. Right. And he said so. He has the power to say so. But after that, it really is in the hand of lawmakers. They take over. They can introduce a bill so long as they can say it fits his agenda. And also they decide when to adjourn. So they could be headed home Wednesday or they could be in for a much longer week at the Capitol. Sam Brash, thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan. And Sam will have updates on this special session throughout the week. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. People who hear voices can turn to a support group. It's a safe space for those who experience a highly stigmatized mental health condition. And yet it's not necessarily rare, nor is it necessarily a sign of severe psychosis. Solid numbers are hard to come by, but by one estimate, as many as a quarter of the population could hear voices at some point that others don't. Psychologist Ronald Bassman started the Boulder chapter of the Hearing Voices Network. He speaks at a conference in Denver this week focused on compassionate mental health care. And Ronald, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You help facilitate the Hearing Voices group in Boulder, which meets weekly. Uh, They're also, I think, in Grand Junction and Fort Collins. Uh, That's right. Take us inside a, a typical meeting. Well, basically, it's more of a social group than a clinical group. In a typical meeting, each person can speak about anything they would like, and uh, the response of members uh, of the group, including me as facilitator and my co-facilitator, is to just respond with curiosity to see what a person is experiencing or if they're reporting on a social event uh, So it would be up to that particular group that's meeting to define what that particular group would be working on because people come and go in the group also. I have to imagine that it's really refreshing for someone who hears voices to be met with curiosity and not judgment. Absolutely. Um, They've been told generally, uh, and the people who come to the group usually have a psychiatric diagnosis, and we don't talk about diagnosis or anything clinical. And people have learned over time being involved in treatment that they're probably better off not talking about the voices with anyone. So for many, it may be the first opportunity they have to share what they're experiencing with other people who experience voices. And then they have the opportunity to change their relationship with the voices. So the idea is that the voices may remain, that it's, it's not that they'll disappear with medication, something like that? Generally, medication, psychiatric medication, does not eliminate voices. What it actually does for most people, it makes them care less about the voices, So what's attempted in the group and has been found successful um, over probably more than 30 years beginning in Europe is that the opportunity to share how people negotiate with their voices triggers other people in the group to learn that they can make changes. So many people do not even want to lose their voices. They just want to have them 
more as a friend or a relationship that uh, they can use as opposed to voices that are critical or distract them. What has happened to people who speak openly in public about their voices? You say there's a lot of fear there. Well, for one thing, uh, people consider them dangerous, unpredictable. They're socially ostracized. They're discriminated against. There's a lot of misconceptions about voices that are beginning to change with the Hearing Voices movement. We've learned um, through um, current and past research that people who hear voices may never never be involved with psychiatric problems. Uh, It's just a common occurrence. It's also been um, suggested that it was much more prevalent in times past, in ancient times, in times of Homer, um, that voices were just very standard for people, normal for people to have, to hear voices. Ah, that there were times in history when hearing voices wasn't so stigmatized. I I imagine that a question you face and that a lot of these folks in the Hearing Voices support group face is, what if the voices tell you to do something bad, right? Isn't that part of the fear here? Yes, absolutely. That's a strong misunderstanding about command voices when their voices command you to do something. But really, it's one's personal responsibility to not act on it. Um, Many people hear voices that say that they should kill themselves, but don't do it. Um, You don't have to follow what a voice tells you, um, just as if you have a thought when you're really angry at somebody and feel like killing them, you don't act on it. Most people don't. What do you you think the comparison? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. The comparison that's often made is that people with mental illness, serious mental illness, what's called madness or psychosis, are more violent than standard uh, normal people. But uh, the research really shows that uh, a better predictor of violence is substance abuse or a history of violence. Um, And people with serious mental illness tend to be more victims of violence than perpetrators. It is also true that when they are violent, it's more often that they turn it against themselves as opposed to others, isn't it? That's true. Yeah. Can you help me understand the distinction between sort of the... I don't know. I guess the the voices we all hear in our heads, which just say, oh, gosh, don't cross the street right now because there's a car coming down. And someone perhaps who's hearing voices that are getting in the way. I I guess it's gray area, right? Well, the I probably best explain it by the stance and the credo of the hearing voices movement. And that is that the voices one hears that perhaps nobody else hears are real. They're not anything different than the sound of a real voice. Um, Some of the newer research that's coming out now is saying that people who hear voices tend to have a better or a different quality of hearing than uh, people who don't hear voices. And that is that the person who hears voices can distinguish, uh, let's say in a group where many people are talking, can follow and distinguish the meaning from the different conversations, whereas most people 
just hear one conversation in a group. Huh. But it's not as if the people who hear voices are hearing actual voices in a particular room necessarily. Uh, that, that is, if they're alone, they may hear voices. And, and how, do they, how do they say that that in, um, influences their daily lives? Well, it, there's a great diversity in it. Some people find that the voices um, will be helpful in the sense of it's kind of like intuition. The voice might suggest that it would be better to go one place or another place or to talk to somebody about uh, an issue. The problem is the voices, very much like dreams, sometimes have to be interpreted and we have to learn how to deal with it. Uh, For instance, um, there's an example that one person who hears voices has talked about where she was working and she said the people at her workplace were trying to kill her. And she thought about it because she had worked with voices herself. And she realized what the voice was saying is you're working too hard and you need to delegate some responsibility where it's going to kill you. Not literally, but will affect you poorly. So when the voices can be interpreted for what they're doing, um, they can be quite helpful. I imagine that you must talk a lot about that in the Hearing Voices group. um, Yeah, and and one of the things is that the Hearing Voices groups will actually vary from week to week, depending on what's happening with the people in the group and how they're dealing. The greatest, um, I would say probably the most beneficial aspect of the group is to be able to share and not be um, judged when you're talking about the voices, regardless of what they say. Are there times where you've wanted, though, to, to bring in help or law enforcement or something because of, of a topic that was raised in a group? Um, are there ever alarms? No, um, it's not my responsibility or anybody's responsibility in the group to do to act on what somebody else is saying. Um, of course, you, you have a professional responsibility to intervene if there were an immediate and apparent threat, but it doesn't sound like that's what emerges in this. No, and it's not. Uh, I'm not operating as clinician in the group. I'm a member of the group. Yeah, let me say that... that um, Your own experience with mental illness informs this because you had a diagnosis when you were in your early 20s. Will you tell me about it? Well, I, um, it's hard to give a short answer to that, but um, I was diagnosed with schizophrenia and I was hospitalized for six months. I had some really atrocious treatments that are not giving at this time. And at the time, where I was um, considered mad. I heard voices and I saw visions and I had the television would talk to me. I had all the classic symptoms. Um, What I've come to understand over the years is that often when people are experiencing symptoms, they're trying to do something with a life that's not working for them. So um, sometimes when you attempt to change who you are and how you're dealing with life, you take a path that's not correct and the ordinary realities um, diminish or dissolve. 
I'm not sure I know what you mean. Well, I'll put it in a personal way. I was very unhappy. I was felt trapped in where I was. And I made a conscious decision that I wouldn't do things the way I did before. And that my reality was not the same reality that other people had. And when I stopped caring so much about what other people thought or did, I started to experience my own intuition and uh, different elements of relating to people. Now, without somebody really understanding what's going on with a mentor, without a mentor or a teacher or a coach or somebody who has understood the process, you get carried away. And that's when you think you're much larger than you are. And you lose perspective then. On, Correct. And I gather that this is partly what led you to become a therapist. A uh, good part, yes. Uh, the attempt to understand myself. And in a funny way, I felt like uh, I was hospitalized twice against my will. And I thought, well, you know, maybe if I learned what they were doing, I would protect myself from ever getting hospitalized again. If you became the one offering treatment, you'd have that different perspective. And, and I'm going to say that later this week, you speak at the International Society for Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry Conference here in Denver, whose mission is to raise awareness about dehumanizing aspects of mental health treatment and to promote more compassion in the field. Sounds like that's something you wish you'd have had more of when you were younger. Well... I've been doing this work for many decades, and I've watched how people can really um, transform their experience and make it meaningful. A uh, very large topic today is the idea of spiritual emergency, that one is redefining who they are and they open up to an experience in other cultures uh, people can become shamans or leaders or gifted healers when they experience this. Um, Ronald, thank you one so of much. The, I'm so sorry that that's, a, that's all the time we have, but I appreciate your perspective. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Absolutely. Ronald Vassman is a Boulder psychologist. We talked about the Hearing Voices Project and this week's conference in Denver of the International Society for Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry. Colorado's Western Slope has a new poet laureate, and he just so happens to be CPR's resident poet, David Rothman. Rothman lives in Crested Butte and teaches at Western State Colorado University. And to mark the occasion, he shared a poem with us, one he wrote for a friend of his. This person is also a very great musician, one of the greatest violists alive, and a very great teacher of music. And he's also a very devoted fly fisherman. So that's why these two things come together here. The playing of the viola, fly fishing, and this person's love for the mountains, and uh, frankly, my, my love for him. And so from David Rothman, Colorado's Western Slope Poet Laureate, here is the poem, The Trout and the Fly. The trout considers the fly, and the pool in which the trout considers the fly brims and ripples. And the man who has carefully and cunningly cast the fly away from his shadow stands in the cool pool of the Taylor River that brims and ripples as the trout considers it. And the man considers the trout as it considers the fly. 
And as the man waits for what seems like an eternity for the damned trout to make a decision, he realizes that the moment is actually an arpeggio. For everything is moving, upward, downward, forward and back, side to side, the bobbing fly and the trout holding his place in moving water, considering the fly. Water that is washed down from Park Cone, from Matchless Mountain, from Fossil Ridge and Grizzly Peak. Mountains that have pulled water from clouds, lifted orographically as they approached the Great Divide, the divide that runs like an enormous spine down the continent, reaching its highest point near here, creating and separating the headwaters into 10,000 brooks, streams, creeks, and rivers flowing to the Colorado and the Missouri, all simultaneously and perpetually rushing away from that apex over rocks, broken rocks, stones, gravel, pebbles, sand, and dirt, and sometimes around the legs of fishermen, casting for cutthroat, rainbow, brown, and brook in the pools and eddies of the rivers that are wearing down the mountains, even as they are lifted up out of the seas to which they are slowly returning. And the man knows that this has happened before, as there are stone shells near the summits of Fossil Ridge and Treasury Peak, and that it will no doubt happen again, like a vibration, or the echo of a vibration, one bridging and binding the gulf between all things as the sun and the planets and the stars wheel above. The kind of music a master might create near death, hovering in leukemia, as Bartok does in 1945, moving from one sphere to another, churning out one masterpiece after another until the viola concerto floats in like a final fevered dream for Primrose. Oh, listen, listen to Tamestit play it, or maybe even better, Menuhin, especially the Adagio Religioso that begins in E at the opening of the second movement, and rivers will flow through your heart, even when it has broken like the rocks in the rivers, in which you are also the trout and the pool and the mountain and the stars and even the fisherman, his cast like the guiding of a bow. Who cares if only ten people came to Bartok's funeral? The music, the music, music he never heard but knew he had made is still running into the pool, and that is what matters. Even the water of vibration. And the man knows this as he fishes for the trout, as any man knows more than he can say. And he knows that the trout and the pool in which the trout considers the fly, and the water flowing into and out of this pool and every pool, and the mountains he loves, from which the water descends to rivers, pools, and oceans, which hold the remnants of the mountains, and out of which new mountains will arise, will all pass away as he and everything and everyone he loves will pass away but continue to sing. And now, even now, the music sings in the pool of the Taylor River, under this sun, but also upon every moonless midnight studded with gems, the way all music sings, even as it is passing away, both perfect and changing, for everything sings as it passes and continues to sing and the trout considers the fly. The Trout and the Fly by Colorado Matters resident poet David Rothman. He's been named the fourth poet laureate of Colorado's Western Slope. Read his poem in full at cprnews.org.
That's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner. And we're on Facebook, CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Public Radio.